Here's a reminder from Percival Scientific. Science hasn't stopped, and neither have we. Visit the Percival Scientific website to see our new 4-color and 7-color LEDs for plant growth. Welcome to Planttopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Planttopia. Imagine when this disease gets there. What's going to happen on an entire sort of continental scale? We have failed to stop it in the United States. Let's admit it. Reacting to a problem is not really working. It's said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. In some ways, this has been the history of introduced pests and pathogens in the U.S., from chestnut blight to Dutch elm disease to any number of introduced insect pests. The story follows a familiar plot line. But the story is told in flashbacks of the introduction, the spread, and finally destruction. In today's episode of Plantopia, we're talking about the latest sequel in this series, a disease called Laurel Wilt, in the hope that we might not recycle the plot, but discover a new and better ending. We have to pay attention to what's happening around us and take ownership of it and, and be good stewards and think strategically, politically, financially and such and align our resources to protect and preserve what we have around us. Hi, my name is Yuri Halser and I'm the forest entomologist at the University of Florida and I also study forest diseases. Hi, my name is Dave Coyle. I'm a forest health specialist with Clemson University and I work on all manners of invasive species including bugs, fungus and plants. Laurel wilt has been in the news uh, quite a bit lately, and yet I would guess that a fair cross-section of the American public doesn't have a clear idea of what a laurel is or why, if this complex affects just a laurel, why they should care about it. So tell me, why? What's important about laurel wilt? I think laurels are a fantastic family of plants. First of all, when you see any film, any movie, and at the end there's a bunch of awards given to it, you know, the circle of leaves around it, that's laurels. Those are laurel leaves. Uh, those originated from the ancient Greeks and Romans when for whom laurels were really important. It's also the bay laurel, the kind of stuff that you put in your uh, soups and, and baked goodies and such. Uh, bay leaf. Um, there, it's also avocado, the, the 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 fruit that's probably increasing in popularity the fastest of any fruits right now, expanding in in uh, uh, sales around the world. It's just an incredible family of plants, and uh, here in the U.S., we have both the cultivated ones, the avocado. We also have some fantastic wild laurels. Uh, that used to dominate the forests, especially here in the southeast, but also in California and elsewhere. And and the family Lauraceae, you know, it, 
it's most commonly known for what Yuri just said, the, the, the laurel wreaths and the cooking and avocados, but it's a really important component of a lot of natural systems in the southeastern U.S. in particular, especially as you get closer to the coast. It comprises a pretty big chunk of that understory, and it's really important for a lot of different uh, insects. And I know we, a lot of people will say, who cares? It's a bunch of bugs, but bugs are kind of like that building block for everything. You know, little or little things eat bugs, bigger things eat those, and pretty soon you're up to the raptors and the foxes and everything. So they're really critical part of the food chain and if we lose them uh we're going to see some really really um you know important impacts i agree with dave about the importance for uh, living things around us you know the laurels that used to grow all over here in the southeast uh they're chewed up by all kinds of bugs and i think at this point of time we can be very honest about the fact that look bugs are important you know like dave said this has been in the New York Times. We are living in the middle of the insect apocalypse that uh, once bugs are going away, we are going to be seeing very significant implications for agriculture, for our health, for how the planet works. And Red Base, the laurels that we have had here are really important. I have a couple surviving ones in the yard and there are so many insects on them. It's incredible. It's like really like the keystone species in my little garden ecosystem. And you expand that on the scale of the Southeast US or anywhere else where laurels live and you get the point. This really is an important plant for everything that lives in the forest because everything that lives in the forest is connected to other things, you know, to the flies, the caterpillars, the spiders and such. And laurels were really important. So the, the laurel is quite important as a critical component of, of forest and natural ecosystems. But one of the threats to laurel is actually does involve an insect component. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, laurel wilt is a disease that is most commonly spoken of, but what we forget is it's actually brought from tree to tree by a little ambrosia beetle, the red bay ambrosia beetle. Uh, the, the fungal spores do not get to the tree without that beetle. Uh, so that beetle plays a critical, critical role in, in getting there. And as you get Closer to the coast in the southeast, you know, we have such warm uh, weather and weather obviously is changing quite a bit now, but it's almost getting to the point where there's not really a dormant period for a lot of these little bark and ambrosia beetles anymore. So these things are kind of constantly flying. Uh, just, you know, the more they're out there, the more it increases the chance of a little laurel, you know, some Lauraceae plant getting hit with this stuff. Uh, it's a particularly deadly disease. It takes, uh, you know, very few attacks by one of these insects to get enough fungus in there to actually cause that tree to start uh, start dying. I find this to be a fascinating disease. Uh, yes, there is an insect involvement. Dave is absolutely right. It's a tiny little bug called the ambrosia beetle. And the word ambrosia is important. Ambrosia is uh, from the original greek meaning meaning it's a food of gods so those beetles they eat food of gods we uh, have inherited this term from old scientists about 100 years ago when they were observing these beetles these ambrosia beetles they clearly saw that the beetles were eating something inside their little tunnels in the wood 
You know, so these little bugs, the ambrosia beetles, live inside dead wood. And they're eating something, but it's not wood. Like most insects that, you know, termites, whatever, they eat wood and they actually process the stuff. These ambrosia beetles ate something else. Turns out it's like milky. It smells really nice. It kind of smells like peaches and bananas. It's uh, this goop uh, inside their tunnels. That's the ambrosia. Now we know that this is a symbiotic fungus. Symbiotic means that it lives uh, in association with this vector beetle. And they, it's a mutualistic symbiosis. So they, they help each other. The fungus feeds the beetle and the beetle helps the fungus get around from tree to tree. And so now we know that this is a fantastic symbiosis living together of two unlikely organisms. Uh, but in this particular case, it has gone a little bit wrong. You know, there's about 3,000 species of ambrosia beetles around the world. There's many dozens of them living around us here in the southeast. They're amazing animals. They are happy members of the ecosystem, and they never do anything remarkable that people would notice, certainly no damage, except this one. And this one is one that came over from Asia uh, sometime in the early 2000s. And it actually, now we know, a couple of years later, now we know that this is an unusual ambrosia beetle. It actually also likes to attack stressed or living trees already in Asia, already in its uh, native habitat, native region. And so it was brought over here and it started to do the same. What has happened though, is that the Asian trees seem to be fine with this fungus. You know, they've had a couple of million years to adapt. So the Asian trees, the, the ones that evolved in Asia, they're not really susceptible to the fungus. It's our trees that have never met in their evolutionary history. They've never met this fungus uh, that this beetle brought over. Those are dying. Our trees are naive to this fungus. They are sort of uh, hopeless. And um, that is the problem. You know, so when people are talking about ambrosia beetles as being pests, it's not quite right. It's this one bizarre case. And there's no other like it. There's no other ambrosia beetle that carries a, a virulent pathogen of trees like this one. And it's only a virulent pathogen of trees because it came along with the exotic beetle. It's not a native pathogen to the United States. Oh, this is actually even more interesting. Turns out we're now having to define what pathogen really is because the fungus is not actually that pathogenic. What really happens inside those trees, the avocados and laurels that are originally from the New World, uh, turns out the trees mostly kill themselves. The fungus doesn't grow rapidly inside the trees. It's sometimes actually difficult to detect. I mean, it grows there, certainly, don't get me wrong. And it is a, a pathogen, sure, it excretes some things. We don't quite know what they are, but they're harmful to the tree. But what really happens is that our trees, the naive ones, they mount a defense reaction that is so overwhelming that they end up killing themselves. So what the trees really die from is not the fungus toxin, like typically they would in a, in a typical disease. They actually die because they suffocate. They strangle themselves by uh, putting up what's called a tylosis. And imagine tylosis, 
imagine a, a vascular tissue, you know, like a vein, like a blood vessel inside the tree. You know, the whole wood, the whole trunk of a tree is made of these little vessels, right? Little veins that are there to pump water and nutrients from the ground. And imagine if a tree mounts this defense reaction by plugging up some of these veins so that the pathogen cannot move up and down. Except our trees do it too much. And so by plugging up all these vessels or their, their nutrient transport, they end up drying up. And that's what happens. It's as if the clotting factor in your blood didn't require oxygen to be activated and your vascular system in your body simply shut down. Precisely. Why is this disease a problem now? Uh, has it has it gotten to the point after introduction where it couldn't possibly be eradicated, or is it possibly uh, at a point now where it could be contained? Yeah, there's absolutely no chance of eradicating this disease short of some sort of what I would call miracle micro microbe that can get in there and kill it it's 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 over most of the southeastern u.s at this point you know it was first discovered i believe in 2002 near savannah georgia and at the time uh one of the state georgia forestry commission folks just noticed some of these uh red bay trees dying and red bay trees you know forestry is a major major economic driver here in the southeastern u.s but red bay trees are not really a part of that. They're a critical understory component, but there's not a lot of economic merchantability there. So when some of the understory trees start dying, a lot of the, I guess, more typical forestry folks will you know, somewhat shrug their shoulders and say, meh, it is what it is. But in this case, these understory trees started dying and then more of them started dying and more started dying. And one of the things that I often tell people is you really don't realize how many Lauraceae trees are in the understory of a coastal forest until all of them are dead because they hang on to those brown dead leaves and you just see this wall of brown all over the place. It's really, really amazing to see. But at this point, it's present from North Carolina all the way over to Texas, uh, the state of Florida. I believe it's present in every single county in Florida. Um, We've recently found it even in Kentucky. And one of the, the issues there is you know, they don't have avocados in Kentucky. There's not too many Lauraceae, but one Lauraceae they do have, one plant in that family is a sassafras tree. Now, as you get deeper into the Southeast, there's not a lot of sassafras uh, from a merchant uh, merchantability standpoint. It's, you'll find it here and there, but, but as you go a little farther North into that central hardwood region of the country, I'm talking Ohio, Indiana, Southern Illinois, uh, Kentucky, sassafras can be a sizable component of a lot of the forests up there so they stand to lose not just a a member of the forest community but an actual economic part of their forestry um forestry resource so it's a really really unfortunate situation and you know like i mentioned it's so common and so prevalent i don't think we'll ever be rid of it what we try to do at this point is manage it on a local scale so if you've got trees that have this and you're able we ask people to try to get rid of those trees cut them down burn them please don't take them far away that's just going to spread the stuff Um, But, you know, a lot of what we do is just try to be vigilant in monitoring, try to figure out where is it, uh, what can we do about it. I know there's worry that as it gets into eastern Texas that it sort of has a 
a highway of Laurasiae right down into Mexico where the real, you know, major avocado production happens. Uh, that's definitely a worry for people in this country and in Mexico. And it's, you know, something we'll be keeping our eyes on as we move forward. Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Now, back to the show. Have there been any breakthroughs in uh, the possibility of finding natural sources of resistance that might preserve the ecosystem diversity? Yes, to to an extent. The, there is a good news in this whole tragedy, which is that we are seeing that some thing about one about one percent of the red bay population seems resistant to the infection or perhaps they're just good at not being noticed by the beetle we don't quite know why but about one to two percent of the red bays survive now many red bays survive from roots and they they re-sprout but they get killed again but these individuals that seem resistant they survive happily and they uh, are mature and they have seeds and so there is a chance that there's a very good chance in fact that the tree the red bay specifically is not going to go extinct and in fact it might come back over many 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 years uh, so there is a silver lining there and it's it's a, a classical classic story of uh, how natural variation in populations is pretty much our only hope in many of these cases when an exotic bug or disease or you know a, a, a pathogen shows up and wipes out an entire species, it's usually not an entire species. So while we still have some individuals though, the ecological role of Red Bay has been severely impacted. And I also wanted to uh, follow up on what David has mentioned, which is that we're really sort of concerned. Everybody should be concerned about what's going to happen when this disease gets to the south of the border. Mexico is, like David said, the number one producer of avocado, but it also is the start of the forests which, for which a sizable component is formed by Laurasia. Central America and then the South America, the entire continent, has maybe hundreds of species of Laurasia. And some of them are critical. Some of them are really important in the mountain forest of Ecuador, you know, where the f fancy Quetzal bird lives and that kind of stuff. The, those are really critical forests. Imagine when this disease gets there, what's going to happen on an entire sort of continental scale? We have failed to stop it in the United States. Let's admit it. You know, this was also another classic story now of when, and I can, I'll just say it, when a lot of mechanisms that we have in our regulatory system get triggered only when there is a big problem but at that age the cat's out of the bag and there is nothing you can do so instead what we need to be doing is to looking at the horizon horizon for some of these critical threats that we know are coming we didn't know about about this one but we know others are coming and we need to be more proactive <laughs> 
Yuri's absolutely right. You know, the amount and diversity of Lauraceae that we have here pales in comparison to what's south of us in Central America and South America. Um, this is like the tip of the iceberg as far as that goes. And if we couldn't stop this thing here, then it's going to be disastrous when it keeps going farther south. And I, I don't doubt that it will without some sort of major, major action. And I, you know, Yuri is 100% right. We need to be more proactive in things like this. And at this stage in time, we just simply aren't. And that's what a lot, when a lot of these things, you know, how they get rolling, like they get going. In a number of other uh, introductions of exotic species, when the exotic species uh, explodes in numbers in a new environment, there's often a component of the existing system that takes advantage of this new resource. Eventually, something exploits it. It doesn't always happen, but it happens commonly. I'm thinking of uh, zebra mussels, for example. When they were first introduced, they were everywhere. And eventually, something found out that they were good to eat. Is there anything like that going on with this newly introduced ambrosia beetle? <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? If woodpeckers learned that this is a tasty thing. Well, so far we haven't seen it. Uh, the, uh, the the sort of a sad part is that this has been a remarkable invasion of a single genotype of an insect with a single genotype of a fungus. So those are not really the regular type of a population like most other uh, organisms where you would have to have some mating, you would have to have males, females, and that kind of thing. You would have to have some genetic diversity to sustain the species. This is a crazy system where the beetle actually uh, has a weird inbred family system. Inbred is the word. Uh, meaning that the males, there's only one male per family, he mates with all his sisters and all the sisters spread out. They don't need anybody else. Um, the fungus too, it's just a clone. They don't really have uh, the, the typical limitations on their biology like most other organisms do. Like they, have, they don't have to maintain a certain population size. So that's one problem. This is why they spread so easily because a single propagule in other words, a single beetle with a load of a fungus is perfectly sufficient to start a whole new population. That's why they spread so effectively. And as far as something eating them, we have not seen any example of that. True, these insects, these little ambrosia beetles are sometimes exploited by mites, for example. And we know there are some fungi that are parasitic inside those little tunnels. But we have seen zero evidence of anything, like you said, exploiting them and perhaps tipping the balance in favor of a native ecosystem when the this we we have seen this disease going away only in a single type of a case which is when they exhaust the host when there's no more red bay or avocado to be uh, sort of killed and, and exploited the beetle doesn't do well and the fungus kind of disappears in uh, from the landscape and so this is why we are now seeing re-sprouts of red bays coming up from roots but it's very short-lived victory because the beetle just comes back quite quickly and the disease is, it doesn't really disappear from the landscape completely. So sadly, no, we have not seen any biological buffer coming up and saving us. And, and that pattern has occurred with, you know, some of our other really major invasive insects too. Emerald ash borer is a, is a great case where 
everything that was just said applies to Emerald Ashbor. You would think there would be something coming in, taking advantage of this great resource. And sure, you know, you get a little uptick in birds, some woodpeckers, uh, but there's no specialist predator that takes on this thing and does any type of measurable impact on the populations. Gypsy moth is another one. I mean, these these outbreaks, you've got caterpillars all over the place. And sure, you get a few more birds and the mice eat them and, and that type of thing. But it's generalist predators that are attacking these insects. And as a, you know, we don't see generalist predators ever really making a dent in one particular species populations, except under very small scale circumstances, certainly nothing like we see uh, with area wide stuff with some of these great big uh, insect outbreaks. So there's nothing, uh, no virus that would attack a population that was especially dense as, as it might with, with gypsy moths. David, I think you're hitting at an important chapter of this problem, which we can extrapolate onto many other of these new uh, new threats, which is we don't know. You know, one of the things we're wrangling with here is the complete dearth of knowledge about many of these systems. And let me also say an, a connection here to um, what is happening now in our society, which is the COVID-19 virus. Who has studied viruses of bats and pangolins and their, you know, the, the, the potential as, as potential threat to humans? Nobody, very few people. And the same thing has happened here. What, what I think this points to is that this entire perspective of reacting to a problem is not really working. What we really should be doing as a society, or at least as in the academia, is to be very honest about admitting we just don't know very much about the life around us. And we should be studying these things. Turns out, if we just looked in Asia 20 years ago at what is, whether what's, what's happening to laurels there, we would have found this beetle. We know now, now that we know what to look for, we go back to uh, China, we go back to Thailand, we go back to uh, these places, and we can find the beetle attacking living laurels in China. Very short, very simple logical step then would be to see, ah, what's going to happen when this beetle arrives? Because many of these ambrosia beetles are readily transported uh, on cargo ships. We have many already uh, here. They're not harmful. It would be very simple to test this out and very easy to see what is going to happen if we just did that research. But how many people would support uh, a researcher, if, if he or she would want to say, well, I'm going to test, you know, I'm going to go look uh, into the jungles of southern China uh, to see how these bugs live on their trees, what their relationship is with trees. There's very little support for that. So we just have to really be on the lookout before the problem happens. And that, that's, that's also with, the, with potential controls, biocontrol, viruses, fungi, competitors and such. We just don't know anything. So if it's part of human nature that we react to problems once they've blown up in our face, uh, and this has happened several times in the past, it's, I mean, it's commonly said, desperate times call for desperate measures. In our past, when we've had to react to wheat rust epidemics, we have gone after the alternate host for the wheat rust pathogen and have embarked on a program to eradicate that plant on a 
continental scale, we effectively eradicated barberry at one point in our past to control uh, wheat stem rust. Now, that's because wheat is a crop that is uh, a matter of food security and economic security for the United States. Who is the advocate for the laurel that could bring that kind of pressure to bear? Uh, Perhaps not for an understory tree in the southeastern United States. But if you can make the case that it threatens the the Amazon rainforest, uh, or that it is highly relevant to uh, to carbon sequestering and climate change, now it sets the stage for possibly the necessary desperate measure uh, that could address the problem at this point. Yeah, you hit on so many good things there. You know. Wheat stem rust, you've got a major agricultural crop with major, major oomph behind it, right? And when you're looking at Lauraceae, we just don't have that, not in the States. Other parts of the world, yes, but it's just hard. Once it gets to that level where you need political backing and you need those big chunks of support, whether that's from people or for, for, for money, whatever, it just gets so difficult to get the appropriate people on board and convince them that, hey, something needs to be done. And if you don't do something now, it's going to get so much worse because I think so many people that make a lot of these big level decisions, they still see things on a minute by minute basis. They, If you go to them and say, look, Lorace, like the huge chunks of Lauraceae in the Amazon is in danger from this thing. They will look right now and say, I don't see it dying now. And then that's the end of it. They just, it takes so much effort to try to convince them. And um, it's, it's just so difficult to get that scientific message up to the people that make those large scale decisions. You know, and Yuri and I work a lot on trying to bridge that gap. Academics in general are not good at communicating with non-academics. I mean, I don't think anyone would argue that, that most academics can talk to other other people and other peers, but if you ask them to talk to a, a, a the Senate page or something like that, they don't even know what to do. Um, it's something that we need to work on as a profession, and you know, there's certainly some of us that are trying hard to do this, but it's just hard, and I don't Maybe I don't have a good answer. It's just really hard to convince people that it's going to get way worse than it is and to get them to believe that it's actually going to get worse than it is. Because I think we know it's going to. Right? We've got the science that says this is a snowball that's getting bigger and bigger. Um, it's just difficult. For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at planttopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.